Was it all the sex talk last week that half of you didn't show up? Is that? Yes. Marcy said she didn't need marriage information. Okay. You got that on the recording, right? Okay, good. Just, I want that to go out on the internet as much as possible. So, what did she think Song of Solomon was? Okay. <laughs> All right, so we're in week three of this four-week series on Song of Solomon, so next week is the last one. Um, we've been introduced to the players, so there's three of them, uh, King Solomon, the Shulamite woman who is going to be his wife, and then the chorus, or the people at the reception, um, their fans, the crowd. Uh, Song of Solomon is a, is a collection of dialogues and soliloquies, and it's all pretty much romantic even erotic poems. And so from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 5, which is as far as we've gotten, it's really been about the courtship between Solomon and the Shulamite woman. I'm sorry, we don't have a name for her. I guess after tonight she'll be Ms. Solomon, I guess, but um, we just know her as the Shulamite woman. And so far, we're going to get from, go, we're going to go from uh, chapter 3, verse 6 to chapter 6, verse 3 tonight. Uh, and then next week we wrap it up. Uh, the Shulamite woman has done most of the talking so far. It sort of goes back and forth between he and she with an occasional they, chorus, in the midst of it. And we saw last week that at the very beginning of chapter 3, she had what we might call an anxious lover's dream. Uh, and, and uh, we're going to see tonight that she has another dream. Uh, tonight, meaning in the study tonight. Um, she's, we're we're going to look at, we're going to close again tonight with another one of her dreams. And really, it's a nightmare that she has, which we'll eventually get to. But so far, also, we've been anticipating the wedding and the wedding night consummation, which is uh, pretty much what we get to tonight. There's really kind of like three sections tonight. The groom... Solomon arrives for the wedding, there's the wedding evening, and then there's this difficult dream of an anxious lover. So let's look at the rest of chapter 3 first, uh, verses 6 through 11. <clears throat> and this would still be she who's speaking. We don't get to Solomon until chapter 4 again. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke? Perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel. All of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver its back of gold, its seat of purple, its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. So it's interesting, you know, I, I've done more than 400 weddings now as a pastor. And the vast majority of them have been in just in the last six years since I came to Redemption Arcadia because demographically we're such a young uh, congregation. I did a lot more funerals when I was at PVCC. Um, hardly done any funerals um, here. Uh, but it's, you think about, if you've been to a wedding, you think about the processional. And, and the processional really leads up to what? what what's the processional all about? It's, a, it's about leading up to the bride and the bridal march. And we see something a little bit different here. In, in a wedding in our culture, the bride gets the grand entrance, but here it's the groom, it's Solomon. And so the question might be, is it because he's the king and therefore this is an exception? Or is it because this is their custom? And really it's, it's the custom of the Middle Eastern culture to do it this way. Um, and, and Again, when we read something that's like 3,100 years old, we have to remember that contexts are so different. And this is in a Middle Eastern uh, context. So one of the things you need to understand right out of the gate 
which was also news to me, even though you kind of see evidence of this in the New Testament, uh, is that the wedding, uh, not the ceremony, but the celebration was actually seven days long. Anybody been to a seven-day wedding? Anybody in here? No? Okay. Well, if you got married in Middle Eastern culture, it was especially in Israelite Middle Eastern culture, it was seven days long. And then the ceremony, the actual ceremony, now it's going to get really interesting here in a second, so just hang on, fasten your seatbelts. The actual ceremony, usually on the sixth or the seventh day of the week, because it's really just a party up until then for everybody, the ceremony was about 25 to 30 minutes. That's about it. And then here's the third thing. This will shock some of you. Uh, during the early days of the celebration, the groom and the bride would go into a private room together and they would bear themselves to one another. Um, do we have that custom here today? I, not that I know of, at least none of the ones I've done. Now, the reason they did this was not to make sure that they liked what they saw, but it was more of like a, a preview to raise anticipation, to raise tension. And think about this book. This book is filled with sexual tension and anticipation. That was a big part of their culture, was this anticipation. When I do wedding, uh, wedding marriage retreats and conferences and those kinds of things, one of the things that I teach, uh, not necessarily every time, but pretty regularly, is that uh, after a couple's been married for more than three or four years, and especially if they start having children, it is absolutely imperative that you begin to schedule lovemaking. Because if you don't, it may not ever happen. Because you're just too busy, you're just too tired. And other things begin to get in the way. And that is a problem. I'm going to close talking a little bit about this too. And that is a problem in a marriage. You'd be shocked at the number of young couples I'll talk to. Young meaning anything younger than me, of course. But I mean like in the late 20s, 30s, and even early 40s. You know, in, in, in the midst of really tense counseling. And I'll say, how long has it been since you've made love? And they kind of look down. They don't want to make eye contact. They kind of sneak a look at each other. And then they'll say, hmm, it's been six months. Every every other month maybe, and that's, and that's a problem. And then they begin to talk about how busy they are and this and that. You have to schedule it. Now, when I say you should schedule this, you should actually put it on the calendar. People think I'm nuts. Schedule lovemaking. Even right now, I can just look at your faces and you're like, when are you going to get off this topic? Not for another three or four hours. So anyway, um, you should schedule it. And one of the nice things about actually scheduling it is that it raises anticipation. And that actually becomes pretty exciting. Now, I've done marriage retreats and conferences at the same place over the course of uh, years. I'll go back and I'll have couples come back to me on a regular basis and they will say, you know, you taught this the first time we heard you at a retreat here or a conference or whatever. You taught this. We thought you were insane. And then we decided to try it. Now we're telling other couples in our church that you should do this because it's awesome. And you're right. It builds this anticipation and it makes, it makes our time together even better. So I think there's possibly a little bit of that going on here. Now, going back to start the seven-day ceremony, it is the groom who processes to the bride's house to take and accept her from her father and then go to the celebration. In, in our wedding, it's the bride that processes up front, and then the groom goes and accepts her from uh, the father or the person who's giving her away. Chuck Swindoll writes this. When the wedding day finally arrived, the bridegroom would dress himself in festive garments wearing a crown of gold or silver or flowers. He would proceed with his friend and other, attendant, and other attendants from an unknown place at an unknown time 
to the bride's father's house. The virgins of Israel would be outside waiting along the way in the evening with their oil lamps lit until the loud warning cry, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. And they would meet him and proceed with him to the entrance of the bride's father's house. And there was no guarantee of exactly when this was going to happen. They knew it was, there was a window, a, t- a window of time when it would happen, but there was no exact time when this would necessarily happen. But that's exactly what we have here with Solomon coming forward. So then you look at these descriptions. Verse 6, the columns of smoke. What are the columns of smoke? It's the dust being kicked up by all the horses. So these are all metaphors, all comparisons. Uh, the fragrances and powders that... Uh, she says she's smelling, is the assumption that Solomon is all gussied up for the wedding. He's not close enough that she can actually smell it. She's assuming that when he gets there, he's going to smell really good. In verses 7 and 8, it says that he's coming in his litter. Uh, The litter is the luxurious hand-carried couch of an ancient royal. How many of you have seen um, Gladiator? In that opening scene where Commodus is being carried, right, with his sister, okay, that's, that, is, that is a litter, okay? Um, and, and the 60 mighty men are a combination of Solomon's best man, his groomsmen, and trained soldiers. He's the king, he needs a protective entourage, he's popular, he needs his crew, and it's a show of strength to his... Um, his uh, upcoming wife. It's a show of strength to her so that she knows that she's always going to be protected from outside physical harm. So Solomon's a very important person. He's got this entourage, and she's impressed and excited about it. So who has something like this today? Who has this big entourage? Well, LeBron James does. If if you've ever seen him traveling around, he's got his little entourage with him, or big entourage. The Pope has an entourage. POTUS, President of the United States, has an entourage. Maybe Lena Dunham. I don't know. I've heard stories, okay? And then verses 9 and 10. These are two verses just for his carriage. This is separate than the, than the litter. Just for his carriage. Wood from Lebanon. This is like purses from Gucci or yoga pants from Lululemon. It's the best possible wood that you can get. Lebanese wood is the best. Purple. Purple dye in the ancient world was actually rarer than gold or silver. It came from the murex shellfish. And it was very difficult to harvest. It took a lot of time, energy, effort, and money to be able to harvest it. And just coming from one of those little murex shellfish, you might get a drop of purple dye, and that's it. And think about how expensive it would be to dye an entire garment, how many of these murex goldfish you would have to, to or murex goldfish, these murex uh, shellfish you would have to get. And then verse 11 again. Uh, go out, O daughters of Zion, and, and look, up, look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. What is the Shulamite woman really saying here? Uh, greeting the groom is an important part of the ceremony, them coming out to greet them. Uh, it also seems countercultural in their context, but the mother of the groom is actually the one responsible for dressing the groom. The mother of the groom is responsible for dressing the the groom, I, again, I haven't seen that really in any weddings today where the mother's in with the groom and all the guys getting him ready. But that's the way it was in Middle Eastern uh, cultures. And she was specifically responsible for the crown or the wreath that was going to go on his head. And this was not just for ancient royalty. It was true of all uh, ancient Jewish weddings. And consider this. This is the day his heart rejoiced. We, we tend to just skip over that but this is a beautiful thing this is genuine love and now solomon speaks for the next 16 verses verse uh, chapter 4 we'll start with the first seven behold you are beautiful my love beautiful you are behold you are beautiful your eyes are doves behind your veil your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of gilead your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, 
I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Uh, We don't know this for sure, but this may be Solomon referencing the reveal time when she's standing before him bared. Um, Even though she still has on her veil, apparently, it might be the only thing that she is, is wearing at this point. And verses 1 through 7 form what scholars call a literary envelope. Um, as Solomon expre- expresses his appreciation for and his utter astonishment at her beauty, these seven verses are a poem of sorts, a self-contained poem uh, inspired by her beauty, and the poem seems to start at the top and go all the way down to the bottom, to her feet. So it's kind of like he's working his way uh, down her body. And although, although the, the metaphors are vivid and robustly sensuous, they can be quite obscure to people like us who have not lived in their context, in their cultural context or in their time context. And I would just suggest that this poem should cause a response from us. It should be emotional or inspirational, maybe some awkwardness, and if it doesn't, there might be something wrong with us, because he's getting after it here. One commentator Quite strenuously, I would describe, because of the prudishness of our Christian world, makes this argument. It's uh, Balkan. He writes this. To speak of his bride's body in these glowing terms is an expression of love. Christians need to realize that we are not so otherworldly that we cannot admire the human body and, in the correctly godly context, talk about it. This is physical, sensual, and verbal love in the context of marriage, not lust. And guess what? People are not so unhappy to hear that their loved one appreciates their body. It is silly and ignorant to think otherwise. So verse 1. Beautiful, beautiful. He just can't stop saying it. And doves are representative of brightness, gentleness, and purity, that purity being from God. He's actually complimenting her about her godly um, purity. And the wedding veil, you know, today, if you think about a wedding veil today, it's quite ornamental. We, We fuss over it, we make a big deal over it, and we pay way too much for the wedding veil. Can I get an amen from anybody who's had to pay for one of those, okay? But back then, it was actually a very serious romantic tool. You're kind of teasing with the eyes peering out. It was, it was designed to kind of keep the groom intrigued a little bit. We talked a little bit about that last week. You know, kind of the intrigue of, of romantic love. And then goats, the goats and slopes. Your hair is like a flock of goats going, going down the slopes. Okay, you're a woman today. Your boyfriend or husband tells you that your hair is like a flock of goats. How's that going to go over? Okay. It's actually a beautiful and graceful sight that Solomon is referencing. There is a beautiful majesty in the Middle East when there's a flock of pure black goats that, that's in tight formation that's flowing down the side of, of a very green hill. It's, it is an absolutely spectacular sight. And then verse 2, understand, they didn't have orthodontists or bra- braces or whitening chemicals back then, but this woman apparently did not need them for her teeth. Verse 2 describes a set of perfectly white teeth, and none of them are missing. That's that whole idea. You, you, get, you get that language, right? She has no missing teeth, Okay. And they're matched. Her upper and lower teeth actually match. This is very rare in ancient times. She had no orthodontic help uh, at all. And again, I mean, you know, you're sitting in front of a fire, having a nice glass of wine with your love interest, and he looks at you and says, honey, you got great teeth, man. I mean, that just, I mean, just uh, the fire gets all sparky at that point. I mean, it's amazing. And how about social media profiles? How many of you are putting on your social media profile? I have great teeth, okay? They're just like the Shulamite woman's in the Song of Solomon 3,000 years ago, man. They're, they're, like, they're like lambs. They're like baby lambs, okay? 
you're not going to see that too, too terribly much. And then verse 3, they're all tremendous compliments. Her mouth is a beautiful set of matching ribbon lips, and the pomegranate is a big deal. The skin of a pomegranate was highly praised in Middle Eastern cultures for its beauty. You would, and the fruit of the pomegranate, of course, is one of the most refreshing things you could eat on a hot day in the Middle East. So inside and out, the pomegranate was very valuable. They'd eat the fruit, and then they would flatten out the skin and sew the skin together and make bags and things like that. But the skin was also very beautiful. And then the neck is a Tower of David. There's not too much information biblically or historically on this Tower of David, but most commentators say it really doesn't matter because in this comparison, what Solomon is saying is that she is a strong, sturdy woman of great endurance and intelligence. And then verse 5 is uh, pretty intimate and personal. Let me reread that. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Um, the female body is beautiful. God made the female unique, beautiful, special, and set apart. And it's okay to admit that and admire that in the right context. And if you don't believe it, it's in the Bible. Here you go. Genesis chapter 2. So this is um, at the creation, verse 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. It's the first time the man's seeing this woman. And the man, Adam, he sees Eve and he says, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, in the English, that doesn't sound too great. But in the ancient Hebrew, this is absolutely magnificent and beautiful poetry with all kinds of wordplay. Here you go, guys. The first time he saw her, he was so stunned by her beauty that he broke out into impromptu poetry. How, Ladies, let me hear from you. How many of the guys that you're with how many of them, the first time they saw you, they just started reciting impromptu poetry when they saw you? There's not a single one of it. Anybody starts singing. Just a song. Just singing a song. Well, I'm hot-blooded. Anybody. Anybody. Okay, see, guys, we got we, we to gotta step up our game. We're not doing too well here. All right? This is Adam taking a first look at what God has created for him. He's like, and, and that word, uh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The, the ancient Hebrew has several different words that can be translated as male and female, man and woman. The, the words that are used here, for, the word for man is ish, and the word for woman is isha. Like, ah. That's what a lot of common, they, they say that's where a lot of the wordplay is. There. He's just stunned by her beauty. Well, Solomon has the same things to say about the Shulamite woman. And by the way, if you think this still isn't important, even on the Seinfeld show, if you remember that episode, okay, when they were arguing about how beautiful the female body is versus the male body, and they asked Elaine to, at Monk's Cafe to join the conversation, they said, what do you, what do you think? And, fem and Elaine says this. She says, the female body is a work of art. The male body is strictly utilitarian. It's like a Jeep. There you go. And, and he says, you have breasts like fawns, twins of a gazelle. Again, remember Proverbs 15 last week? Remember that? You're to rejoice in the wife of your youth and, and let her breasts delight you always. Yeah, this is Bible stuff. All right, verse 6. He says, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. Okay, so here you go. The woman is the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense in this, in this comparison. And he will go to her for how long? Until the day breathes, until the break of dawn, and until the shadows flee, until the sun sets. Here's what he's saying. 
I want to be with you all day and all night long, all 24 hours. It's about his desire to be in her presence all the time. He longs to be with her day and night. It is beautiful poetry. And she's complimented by this. And then verse 7, I think there's a gospel perspective and perception here that I mentioned last week. I'll say it again. She is beautiful. And in his eyes, she will always be beautiful. It's Proverbs 5. And he says, you're without flaw. That does not necessarily mean it's true. The corruption of original sin not only made us sinners, but it also corrupted our bodies. There is no such thing as a flawless body. If that were true, if there were flawless bodies, we would not need to have models, professional models, who have every possible benefit there is. We wouldn't need to have them airbrushed on their, on their pictures. You realize all those model magazines and the covers, everything's been airbrushed. All the flaws have been taken out. Everybody has flaws. You understand that. You recognize that. It's what kind of lens are you looking through? Is this godly love? Is this the gospel? Is this, is this, are these redeemed eyes that you're looking through? With lens of biblical love, he sees perfection. Um, a little personal, Jackie tells me that she sees flaws in her appearance. I literally see none. I'm blind to it. And there is not one thing I would change about her. And here's, here's the irony. And yet, if she changed, it wouldn't change my opinion of her. And that's not me. That is not me. That is the gospel. That is a whole, that is a whole new perspective that you're talking about. By the way, about this seven-verse poetic section that has caused so much awkwardness right here tonight, Swindoll writes this. God is not only ordained for play, but he's ordained for speaking. Hey, guys, that's gold. Talk it up a little bit. Talk it up a little bit. Solomon now moves in the next nine verses, I'm sorry, eight verses, nine verses, from his admiration of his bride to his desire and hope for their relationship. So look at 8 through 16. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much Better is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. Henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon. With all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. She responds by saying, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. The term my bride appears here six times in these verses, along with my sister. But my bride is important. We'll come back later to my sister. And, and, and I believe it's not mentioned anywhere else in the book, which means we're at the wedding night now. This is an, this is an appropriate way to be speaking for a wedding scenario. So we're at the ceremony night. In verse 8, the Shulamite woman is not literally from these places. We need to understand that. She's a Shulamite. She's not from these places. But in his mind, she might as well be from these places because two things in these verses are present. Number one, the places he names are known to be desolate and difficult. And he's telling her that with him, she's always going to have provision and protection. Just like we have with Jesus. 
Jesus is always providing for us and protecting us. Always. Now, our challenge is, is that we don't always see it. In fact, we would argue that that's not always true at times. But how many times have you thought that he's, he's not providing for you in a moment, and then a little while later, weeks later, months later, you look back and you realize he wasn't providing, but he was protecting me at that time. And you begin to see in retrospect how he protects and provides. Second of all, he is asking her to leave her previous life behind and fully with him now, just as he is going to leave his previous life behind and be fully with her. Again, we need to understand this and embrace this and learn this. Full presence in our romantic relationships. And verse 9, captivated my heart. Now it is uh, his turn to say that everything he is and has is hers fully present with her. And the heart is the center. When you talk about the heart, in, in ancient Hebrew, in the Bible, the heart is not the way we think of it today. The heart is the core, the center of everything that a person is. It's your mind. It's your emotions and feelings. It's your logic. It's your soul. It's, it's everything about you. And it represents the totality of commitment. And then there's that one glance. Think about that one glance. Again, this is very romantic. Even maybe a bit of fantasy. Yet I remember this one glance happened with me and Jackie. At least it happened. I know it happened with me. I, remember the, I still remember the first time I saw her. First time I saw her, she was kind of walking by, going over to her desk at work. And she's walking by, and I look up, and she turns and looks at me and just smiles at me and continues to her desk. And that was it. It was over. Game over. Now, of course, I was very cool and didn't let her let on. But she knew. She knew. There was just something totally different about her, and I knew it. And I was felled by that one look, that one glance. I was never the same after that. And she can still do it to me. And again, it's, again, it's Genesis 2, 22 through 23. But, but we need to under, also understand this never lasts of its own accord and momentum. Do you understand that? That, that feeling that we've all experienced with somebody... Of its own accord and of its own momentum, it never lasts. But it can last. It can last. You got to work at it, though. You got to make it happen. Couples that quit courting each other after the marriage is over with are couples that are headed for trouble. You have to keep courting each other, you have to have date nights. You have to think about things that you can do for your spouse rather than wondering why your spouse doesn't do more for you. You have to do this stuff. And he says, you're, you're my sister too. He not only calls her his bride, but his sister. In other words, he has a tremendous level of respect for her. She's not just an object of beauty. But also in verses 10 and 11, these verses are just what you think they are. They're, they're sensual. They're sexual. You can't explain that away. These two verses speak of two forms of intimate physical contact, caresses and kisses. And there's an intimacy about the kisses. He says that there's honey and milk under her tongue. How does he know that? Consider the language, too. The land of milk and honey, isn't that ironic? In verse 12, the garden, this relationship, because it's one of husband and wife, is going to have as a major part of it, sex. Uh, again, we've talked about this before. Marriage is three orientations, and you have to be willing to invest in all three of these orientations. Marriage is back-to-back. -back. The couple agrees that they're always going to defend and protect each other and advocate for each other and champion each other. 
It's kind of a a military orientation. I've got your back. I'm always going to stand up for you, even if you're being an idiot. I'm going to stand up for you publicly. Privately, we'll have an interesting conversation, but publicly, you know that I'm always going to stand up for you. Side by side, you got to be friends and partners in life. Jackie's my best friend. I'm not ashamed to say it. As much as I like hanging out with a lot of different guys. If my option is between those guys and Jackie, I'm going to spend my time with Jackie. But we're also partners. We're partners in raising our kids. We're partners in each other's careers. We're partners in each other's interests. There's an affinity there as well. And then face-to-face. Face-to-face is the intimate part of your relationship, which is certainly physical. That's a big part of it, but it's not the only part of it. It's also emotional intimacy and spiritual intimacy. The face-to-face orientation is everything you share with each other that you wouldn't share with anybody else. And that is sacred between the couple. So back-to-back, side-by-side, face-to-face. You're going to have seasons in your relationship where there's more of this than this and this, where there's more of this than this and this, and there's more of this than the other two. But if you neglect any one of the three, you neglect it at your own peril. There has to be elements of all three throughout the entire uh, relationship. And the metaphor of the garden refers to the totality of a groom's or bride's sexual being. God said, and the two shall be knit together. They're going uh, to become one flesh. We can't be prudish about this. And locked up, the idea of locked up refers to the fact that she saved herself for marriage, and this is a tremendous gift that she's going to be able to give to him. And then verses 13 through 15 is just a shower, a shower of complementary metaphors. But this part is actually not physical. All of these references to the plants in the garden transition into uh, Solomon complimenting her on her personality and her character. Like verse 15, she is living water. Living water is water that is alive and flowing. It's, It's not water that's stored or still. So what he's saying is that she's intelligent, witty, and constantly on the move. She has energy. And these verses also indicate that Her love and ultimately their love is a love that is ever-expanding. I I mentioned this last week. You know, we've heard that saying familiarity breeds contempt, but not not in a gospel romance, not in a gospel-centered romance. Familiarity in a gospel-centered romance will breed an intimacy, the, the, the kind of intimacy that you and I have pined for our entire lives. It's something that we know is deep within us. We know it's out there. And we want this kind of intimacy and transparency and authenticity and trust. We want it because we know it's there somewhere. And that's what the gospel is trying to do for us, is reverse the curse. We lost all of that in the curse. When when they ate the fruit, The first thing that they did, they they were naked, they realized they were naked, they began to cover themselves up. And all of that intimacy, that trust, that uh, vulnerability, that authenticity, all of that stuff that you and I desperately want was gone because of sin. The gospel begins to, uh, comes and begins to restore that and begins to, and, and gives us a foretaste of what that's really like. But we just get a little foretaste of it. Uh, when I was married to Jackie, I remember standing at the altar as a new Christian and thinking, it's never going to get any better than it is right now. And I was wrong. I was just wrong. But I will tell you that without the gospel and without the gospel perspective, I would have been correct. It's not me and it's not her. It, it's, it's the way Jesus just... I can't even explain it. It's just magnificent. Familiarity in the gospel actually breeds an intimacy that you and I have been dying for our whole lives. That's the grace of God. And then verse 16, he's 
asking for a wedding invitation to the wedding bed, or for an invitation to the wedding bed, and in the second half of verse 16, she accepts the invitation and consummation occurs. The two become one. Again, back to Genesis uh, chapter 2, the last two verses. The last two verses before the fall. And this is right after the impromptu poetry. God says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and, the, and they shall become one flesh. Literally in the Hebrew, they'll be knit together. They'll be woven together. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So what we have here is both covenant and consummation. You see the com- consummation there, that um, the two will become one flesh. That's the idea of consummation. But there's also covenant here. This is the only ancient writing of its kind that talks about how the man is going to leave his current family and be with his wife. Every other ancient writing talks about how the man stays with his current family, finds a wife, and brings her into the new family. And she becomes a part of that family with all of their traditions and all of their issues and dysfunctions and everything. It's the only one where he, he leaves his family, not because he disrespects them and doesn't love them anymore. It's, it's not that they aren't important. But what God is saying is you are now coveting with your wife that she is the most important person in your life and vice versa. She now holds that place in your life. Not your parents, not your brothers and sisters, not even your family traditions. You are going to start your own new family traditions now. There's also something else about this that a lot of people miss. They'll be knit together, that's the consummation, but it also tells us something else. In God's plan for marriage, every man is a one-woman man. Think about ancient Middle Eastern cultures. Men had way more than one wife, and God's saying, nope, not in my economy. You're going to be a one-woman man. That's part of the covenant as well. So at the end of verse 16, she says, I'm ready. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat of its choicest fruits. So there's the wedding night. They got the suite at the Biltmore. A lot of fun. Verse 5-1. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. That's him speaking again. It's funny, the tense with which verse 5 went, so you have 416, consummation, wedding night. The tense of verse 1, chapter 5, the very next verse, is now past tense. Solomon is already fondly reminiscing about his wedding night with her. You see that? He's remembering how wonderful that was. Okay, and then verses... um, Two through eight of five. I, uh, she speaks, and this is, uh, this is now the beginning of her dream. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I'd bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within him, within me. I arose to open my beloved, to to open my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh, on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen of the city found me as they went about in the city, and they beat me, and they bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. So this sounds a little bit like 
chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It's another dream, but this one's even worse. This is a worse dream. This is turning into a nightmare now for her. It's not pleasant. Uh, most of what I read said that this can be interpreted as a dream that exposes the insecurities that always come with romantic relationships. Isn't, isn't romance interesting how, how you can feel so exhilarated and so insecure at the same time? If you've lost that feeling again, we have some work to do. Both of those. They are married, but she worries about losing him. He's a king, after all, and he's kind of sought after. And she has a bad dream. He's late coming home. She waited up, but finally decided to go to sleep with all the preparation that goes with having to get into bed. She had bathed. She had stripped. Her hair was wet. She contemplates now, even though he's knocking and she wants to see him, she contemplates in her dream the trouble of getting up now and having to do all of those things again later because she had to get up. That hesitation, though, is enough, and he's gone. Remember, it's a dream. So she's regretful now that she hesitates. So when she realizes she wants to get up for him now, she can't find him. And so verses 4 through 7 become an absolute nightmare for her. She's ready to engage. She's worked up. He's worked up. But he's gone by the time she gets to the door. She calls after him. Then she runs after him. She can't find him. But the security forces in the city don't recognize her and don't understand what she's doing out there. So they beat her because they think she's some kind of a threat. Remember, this is a nightmare. It doesn't, make, it doesn't have to make sense. It's a dream. Many people have thought about these verses on another level, too. What if you and I lost Jesus? Would we be desperate like this? Would we? Do we sometimes tarry too long before coming to Jesus? Doesn't life bruise us when we choose to stay away from Jesus? And in her dream, she finally, in verse 8, goes to the daughters of Jerusalem for help. And it says that she's sick with love. In verse 9, the daughters answer. And they say, what is your beloved more than another beloved? O most beautiful among women, what is your beloved more than another beloved that you would adjure us? This is the only place where the chorus, the people at the reception, remember this is a dream, they're kind of like, eh, what's the big deal? Every other time that you hear from the chorus, they're excited and they're cheering them on. You even see that at the end of verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. They say, go and drink, go and drink. This time, though, they're going, what's the big deal, man? He's not that great. He's not that spectacular. You can find somebody else. Why should we care? Well, she answers, verses 10 through 16, and we get a description that's similar, only it's about him, to the one that he gives of her in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4. Listen to what she says. Well, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bespeckled with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set in bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. He is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So there. She answers the question posed by her friends, and she says, what are you talking about? He is incredible. A few of you may appreciate this if you're old enough. When I, old enough, when I hear this description of Solomon in these verses, I think of a guy named George Atlas. Does anybody remember that guy? Okay, so maybe if you don't know who George Atlas is, then maybe Arnold Schwarzenegger or Chris Hemsworth. Perhaps Steve Wheeler comes to mind. Verses. <laughs> He's sitting right over there. Um, verses 10 through 16, his complexion glows and shines. There's a robust healthiness about him that anyone can discern just by gazing their eyes upon him. 
The, the gold there references his nobility, not his nobility in birth, but his nobility in character, which begins to fade away, by the way, after this book. And his hair is perfect. It's jet black and wavy. His eyes exude both strength and gentleness. Isn't that what you want from a man is, is strength and yet gentle? The bed of spices on his cheeks reference a beard that is handsome and not hipsterish. She loves the taste of his lips, his mouth. And by the way, he's got some guns. He's got him some gum, guns. And I, he's got gums, too. I, you know, she just doesn't say anything about him. Uh, the jewels are references to what statues would often be decorated with. So she's saying that his appearance is statuesque. It's a compliment. And his legs, she talks about his legs. He's been doing his squats. And, of course, the cedars of Lebanon, we've already been introduced to them. They're just simply the best. And I want you to understand this. I want you to hear this. Just like with her, uh, her love for him is not the result of his hot body, but rather because she loves him so much, she sees him as hot. Do you see that? That's a really important distinction. It's a really important distinction. And the reason I think this has to be said is, again, no matter how good-looking your love interest is, looks fade. They just do. And looks become familiar. Looks are great, not discounting them, and we all fix ourselves up and preen and worry about it and work out and eat and all that stuff. But to build love on appearances alone is to build your love on a house of cards. It's just that way. It's not going to be that way all the time. You need to build your romance on the gospel. And then the first three verses of chapter 6, the others say, well, Where is your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where is your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? So they're back on board now. And she says, my beloved has gone down to the garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Um, based on her response to the others, the others now get it and want to help, and the nightmare turns into joy and a happy ending. Verses 2 and 3, you know where he was? You know where he went after he knocked on the door? He went down to pick flowers for him. So Solomon, here, here's Solomon. Solomon cares for his wife, blesses her wife, his wife, protects his wife. He's still courting his wife, and he provides for her. And, and again, this is a type of a picture of Jesus, even after we come to him. Jesus desires to spend time with us. Jesus continues to pursue us, even if we feel like he's absent. He continues to pursue us. He is relentless. And often, when we perceive to feel his absence, he's actually in the process of doing something magnificent for us. He's at the garden, gathering flowers for us. He also protects us and provides for us. We've talked about that already. I want to close tonight, good, perfect amount of time left, about seven or eight minutes. I want to go back to romantic relationships and close with this. I want to talk, some of you have heard me talk about this before. For you, it'll be a good review. If you haven't, um, this will be new, and I, and I hope it, you'll find it helpful. I found it very helpful. I know others have as well. Um, there are essentially five loves generally speaking, that are involved in a romantic relationship. Five different kinds of loves. So <clears throat> let's talk about them. Here's the first one, eros. Eros is a love that is centered in the beauty and sensuality of the one being loved. You, you, it, and it's the erotic love. You get that, right? Okay? So it's sexual love, it's sensual, it's beauty. You, you love because of the worthiness of the one being, they're so beautiful, 
so wonderful. You're attracted to them. That's why you love them in an eros way. Okay? It's a very important kind of love. One of the challenges with this love, though, is when it's the only love that your romantic relationship is built on, it doesn't last. It just, it simply won't last. It cannot survive, a marriage cannot survive with this love alone. It needs the other loves. Here's the second love, ludas. Ludas is a love that is based in um, entertainment and excitement. In other words, when you're with this person, you have fun. You might call this affinity. You, you have affinity with that person. You, you, you're, you're fr- you, you like the same things. It's, it's C.S. Lewis saying that the essence of friendship is, is when two people stand side by side and they're looking at the same thing, they're stirred to the same passion about it, they're ex- both excited about it, and then they turn and look at each other and they say, really, you two? And now they share that in common. It's exciting, it's adventurous, they're entertained together. It doesn't mean your whole relationship has to be like that. Jackie still plays competitive uh, on, a, on two different co- competitive co-ed volleyball league teams that actually travel. I mean, this is a it, she, it, uh, big deal. Still plays a lot. I... I like to watch volleyball. I can't play it worth a lick. In fact, some people have offered me money to just stay off the volleyball court. I'm so bad at it. I like to run. She hates run. She hates it. I tried for 30 years to get her to run with me. Never going to do it. <clears throat> but we love to take walks together and go shopping together and go to movies together. And um, She loves to have her feet rubbed and me do the feet rubbing. We do that together a lot. She likes that. I like that. Um, so there, there's this ludos, this entertainment, exciting adventure. But again, think about this now. The love is really generated by the worthiness of the object being loved. You can't, you can't deny that the reason you love is because there's something that happens that you like and that you're attracted to. So there's a worthiness in the other person that causes you to love there. Okay, the next one is storge, right? Yeah, storge. Storge love is love that is slow, peaceful, and secure. You can have lots of sex and lots of entertainment, but if you don't feel secure, big problems, right? So this is, this is a love that you should have at the beginning of the relationship to some extent, but this is one love that should really grow over the years. In an environment of grace and trust, in a gospel-centered marriage, this is the one that really begins to grow and deepen. And, and it's like somebody like me, having been married for 30 years, and I'm able to say, I love Jackie in a more deeply profound way now than I did on our wedding day, and I can't explain it, it's probably this love right here. It takes time to develop, but you got to have it. It's really important. But again, there's something attractive about the security that I feel within Jackie. So that, again, there's a worthiness in Jackie. There's a worthiness in the person that you're loving with storge love that, uh, that draws you to them, okay? The next one, pragma. What English word do you think we get from pragma? Pragmatic. So what do you think this kind of love is? Partnership, utilitarian. It just works. Okay? This kind of love, um, uh, it's practical. You're you're friends because the partnership just works. This is the love. Here you go. This is the love where you feel like, One plus one equals three. That's how great of a team you are. The sum of you two together is better than the parts apart. You're a great team. You get more done together. You you have common goals. Here you go. You understand your roles. Okay? There are things that Jackie does in our relationship because she's good at them and she doesn't mind doing them and even if she does she's willing to do them in order to make the partnership better there are things that i do same reason 
and we just know what those roles are generally. This always freaks people out. I do the laundry. She hates doing laundry. She'll do it if she has to, but I do the laundry. I, it's not like I, I'm sitting around going, I can't wait to do the laundry, but I don't mind it. I, I, it there's something about, here you go, I'm a male, so I enjoy mindless behavior. Folding laundry is mindless behavior. It's like a 10-minute break during the day for me. But it's part of my role, and it makes us better. But again, here you go. This pragma love is a love born of the worthiness of the other person. Now, before we get to the last one, understand there's a couple of others that don't necessarily apply here. Um, there's philia, P-H-I-L-I-A, love, which is a brotherly love. So it's, it's a sibling love. Doesn't apply here. And then there's mania love. This is love that can happen in romantic relationships, but it sabotages the relationship. It makes it codependent and dysfunctional. It's, um, it's that kind of love where the person either feels tremendous elation and excitement because they're with you, or they're completely depressed because they're with you, and they're worried that you won't be with them. And you never know which one you're going to get when you walk into the room. Maybe some of you have had a relationship like that before. Not helpful here. Here's the fifth one. Agape. You've heard of this one, right? This, this is love that is compassionate, selfless, and unconditional. Compassionate, selfless, and unconditional. What's different about this love than the other four loves? It has no rooting whatsoever in the worthiness of the object being loved. This love is imputed to us by Christ. It's given to us by Christ at the cross. We weren't worthy. He loves us. God loves us. That's his character. He loves us. But were we worthy? No. Uh, scripture says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Scripture says that we were enemies of God enemies of God, and yet he loved us, and it's always this agape love. This love is not rooted in the worthiness of the person being loved, the object being loved, but rather it is rooted in the character of the one, being, of the one doing the loving, and that character comes from God, imputed to us at the cross of Christ. Marriage cannot survive without agape. Can't. You can have the other four. If you don't have agape, it's not going to survive you got to have agape love. You have to love your spouse when they are unlovable. Has your spouse ever been unlovable? <laughs> Bud is shaking his head no. Somebody's really got him trained, I'll tell you. <laughs> this is so important. Here you go. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, when, when Jesus says, love your enemies, do you think... Do you think he uses the word eros? <laughs> he's using the word agape. You know, you know what he's saying there? This is what fascinates me. Jesus, in effect, is saying, listen, I know there is no reason on this earth that you should love your enemies. I know that your enemies are unlovable. Love them anyway. Because that's the way I love you. And I'm imputing that love to you so that you can love your enemies. Not that your spouse is your enemy. But there are times when your spouse is unlovable. And that's the power that the gospel gives us. One other thing. I want to go back to eros. The irony about eros love is you cannot build a sustainable and lasting romantic relationship only on eros. But the irony is, is that if you don't have that, you won't have a sustainable romantic relationship either. You just won't. And, and I, I, again, as a pastor, I am absolutely stunned at the number of young Christian couples who do not engage in regular lovemaking. And they have all kinds of problems in their relationship. And they do not see that that is part of the problem. They don't see it whatsoever. 
Tom Schrader once said, a little off topic, but he once said, the problem with the 21st century Christian church in America is that we have too many sexually active singles and not enough sexually active marrieds. And, and I would argue that if you were to say, which is the bigger of the problem? I'd say the celibate marrieds is the bigger of the problems. That's the bigger of the problem. Let me give you an example. This happens quite often. It'll never happen with any of you now because you're never going to come see me. But I have young couples come in all the time for pastoral counseling. And they've got all these problems. They list all the problems, all the problems, all the problems. You know, um, the parenting and the money and the chores and the, the communication and work and just, you know, the yard. Just all these problems. And, of course, he doesn't understand me and she doesn't understand me, whatever, okay? All these problems. And then I'll ask that question, are you guys making love? And, and there's an awkwardness and an embarrassment, and they look away. They kind of look at each other, and then they admit, once last month or whatever. And, and then they begin to explain it away. We're too busy. And then they say this. This is, this is the script, man. I'm telling you. This is the script. And then they say this. You know, if we could just get these other problems fixed, then we'd be able to do this again. Then we'd want to do this again. And I look at them and go, you got it all backwards, man. You have got it all backwards. I'm not saying that if you start making love, these problems go away. But I guarantee you that if you start making love, these problems are not insurmountable anymore. They begin to melt. You begin to see that they are conquerable. You begin to work together. That Look, God created this sex thing. You don't think it's important, that important? It's that important. It's that important. So you can't survive without the agape. You can't survive without the eros. And the other three are pretty important too. That's really the package. That's a lot of hard work, Frank. I don't think I can do all of that. Well, that's why we have Jesus and filling of the Holy Spirit to lead us and give us the power to do this. Well, next week we get to wrap things up. So we'll see you back here at 6. I'll be here Sunday morning too, you know, reading another psalm and then preaching on Proverbs again. So let's pray together. God, thank you for uh, who you are. We just lift you up and praise you for who you are. We thank you for what your son has done uh, and what he continues to do in our lives. We just, we pray for the filling of your Holy Spirit. We pray that the Holy Spirit would come we pray that we would submit to the Holy Spirit. We pray that we would see Jesus, not just in our romantic relationships, but in all of our relationships and in the life of this church. God, equip us and send us out. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.